This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 813. I was a recent college grad from UMass, and I had actually bought a little bit of real estate. I had a condo, I had a two family, but I was sort of just going through the motions. Had hired a real estate broker, and he brought me into his office, and it was, I call it the corruption. And it was very much this matrix moment where he said, you know, you can take the red pill and see how far the rabbit hole goes, or you can take the blue pill and just kind of get out of this real estate thing and just just keep going down the the typical path. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, here today with the Seeing Green episode, and I brought back up. I'm joined today by my co-host, Rob Abasolo, as you can see if you're looking on YouTube, looking handsome and ever, as well as Dana Bull, who was featured on Bigger Pockets Podcast episode 187. We brought her back to give us a little bit of air support on the questions that you, our audience, has answered, and today's show does not disappoint. We're about to get into questions that you asked and provide our answers that everybody can benefit from. Dana is a real estate agent, an investor. She basically has a strategy that was like, how can I get out of real estate investing instead of how big can I get? Very interesting philosophy. And the answers that she provides are based on that philosophy. Rob, what are some things that you think investors should keep an eye out for in today's episode? This is going to be a great episode. I can already tell you that. We're going to talk about so many cool things from how big should your first investment be? Should you go all in? Should you maybe, uh, you know, be a little bit conservative with your first investment? We're going to talk about the logistics of adding to your property. We're going to talk about seller financing. Today, we're going to cover some pretty big topics that I know will change perspectives at home. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that because we have a very good conversation about things to look for in different markets. If you're into long distance real estate investing and things you might not have considered that can help you make that decision. And before we bring in Dana, today's quick tip is brought to you by Batman. Don't forget to make insurance part of your due diligence. It, for many years, insurance was such a small percentage of the overall monthly payment that it was sort of just something you tacked on, wasn't a big deal. Across the country, insurance companies are going out of business. They're fleeing certain states and it's getting much more expensive to find it. Rob and I recently had this problem with our Scottsdale property where my company was able to find us a policy, but it was much more expensive than what we were expecting. So don't consider insurance to be a small expense like it used to be. In some places, it's doubling, tripling, or quadrupling. So make sure you underwrite appropriately. Anything to add there, Rob? It hurts. Whatever your insurance rate doubles, triples, or quadruples can confirm. Yeah, because other things don't. Property taxes don't. If you have a fixed rate mortgage, that doesn't double or triple, but insurance goes up in leaps and bounds. So keep an eye on that, folks. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, 
Hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent to Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rent to Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentoretirement.com today. All right, let's bring in Dana and get to your questions. Dana and Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Quick recap of Dana. Her story is featured on Bigger Pockets podcast, episode 187. She thinks it's a myth about how having a strong why is important. So Dana, tell us why is having an end goal more important than having a why when it comes to real estate investing? Well, I think one of the biggest unknowns for people is knowing when to stop. Real estate can be addicting. It can be fun riding that roller coaster of emotions. And I just found that it was easier for me to come up with a plan, execute on that plan, and then give my permi- myself permission to be done and to move on to other things in life. So, you know, I, I feel like you don't always need to have a why, but you do need to have a will to be able to execute. I love it. We recently had a guest, Chad Carson, on the on the air, and he gave a very similar thing, right? Having like an end goal, having a a reason, like not just blindly stating it, right? Having a purpose, but not just having a super wide net cast out there, but actually having intention behind it. So a lot of reminiscent things. And as I understand it, your original end goal was to hit $450,000 in gross rental income. And you hit that within five years. First of all, congratulations. That's absolutely insane. Why did you pick that goal? And how did you get there? Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about how it all began. 
I was a recent college grad from UMass, and I had actually bought a little bit of real estate. I had a condo. I had a two-family, but I was sort of just going through the motions, and I had hired a real estate broker who I met on Zillow. Zillow was this new platform at the time, and he brought me into his office, and it was, I call it the corruption, and it was very much this matrix moment where he said, you know, you can take the red pill and see how far the rabbit hole goes, or you can take the blue pill and just kind of get out of this real estate thing and just just keep going down the the typical path. And I was so curious. I didn't have a why, but I was impressionable. And I frankly had nothing better to do at the time. So the next step was my boyfriend and I, we were in Florida After we had this conversation, we were all fired up. We were walking down the beach and we were just talking to each other, asking each other, should we go for it? And we decided, yeah, let's do it. So we were out um, getting drinks at the restaurant bar and we chicken scratched this plan. And we pulled the number. The original number was $400,000 gross. And we just pulled that out of thin air. And the rationale was... If we have a business that's bringing in $400,000, we should be good. We should be we should be set. We should be able to make that work. At some point it actually creeped up to 450, but the original goal was $400,000. You don't want to set your goals too low. Right. <laughs> Let's add another $50,000. Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> we don't, why shortchange ourselves? <laughs> so, from there, we actually reverse engineered into it. The Average rent at the time in our market was $1,600 a month for a two-bed, one-bath. So now I'm just taking $400,000, dividing it by $1,600 a month, divided by 12 months in a year. So I need 21 units. 21. I can do that, right? And so then I became obsessed with 21 units. It's like eat, sleep, 21 units. The next step was we came home from the, the trip in Florida And I created a business plan. And when I start talking about business plans, people like, uh, you know, their eyes glaze over. But I think it is so helpful, even if you don't feel like you're super business savvy. My business plans are always just a one page and broke it down into where I'm at with real estate right now, the direction I need to go in, and then what are the goals? What are the next steps? What are my marching orders? And that's how it started. Well, okay. So obviously big, big goal here of 400 to $450,000. At what point? Because obviously that's gross, right? Um, yes. Was there any moment where it sort of dawned on you that the actual profit of the of that 450000 is is different? Or was it just sort of like big, scary goal? Does not really matter? Like I just want to put something out there and I'll figure it out as I go. Yeah. So that was actually the point of narrowing in on gross instead of net. Because once I realized if I tied this to net, I would get so into the weeds with it. And for me, this is just all long term. The idea is I will be hopefully sitting pretty in 10, 20, 30 years. And that's where my mindset was at the time. So that's why it became more practical for me to narrow in on gross instead of net. Okay. So you were kind of thinking of it as like, obviously you want the portfolio to make money, but even if it were breaking even theoretically, once it's all paid off in 20 to 30 years, you're effectively making $450,000 
like profit every single year. Right. Got it. Okay. Plus the the benefits of uh, the other benefits of of investing, the write-offs. Uh Boston, the Boston area is a huge appreciation play. So, with all my buildings, there needs to be cash flow. That's a must. But what I'm really leaning into is appreciation. I I just decided I'm not going to fight that. That's the market where I live. That's the market I'm knowledgeable in. So I want to lean into it as much as possible. Yeah. I think that's the way that the savvy investors are adapting right now. First off, we want to highlight appreciation is not the same as speculation. Those have become synonymous. And I think a lot of people get nervous whenever appreciation is mentioned because they assume that means hoping that the prices go up and you have no plan in place. There's no cash flow. There's no built-in equity. The loan to value is crazy. You're just hoping that prices go up. That's not what we're talking about. There actually is a mathematical approach to investing in real estate that will capitalize on how appreciation plays out. So I think that's wise. But even more wise is why go against the grain? If your market is a cash flow market, you're going to invest for cash flow. If your market is an appreciation market, you're going to invest for appreciation. If there's creative opportunities, you're going to use that. So I think that's wise that you just said, hey, why fight the flow just because everybody else talks about it a certain way? This is what my market's good at, so I'll take advantage of it. So what are some other mistakes you see people making today? So a mistake that that I made is compromising a bit on location. The location, 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 we hear it all the time. But it's hard to grasp. What does that really mean? And I think it's all about understanding the context. So, you know, if I were to buy a multifamily in some of the nicest neighborhoods of Boston, I'd be looking at $2 million entry, you know, entry price point, right? I can't afford that. So instead, I'm going to step out of that market, but I still want to purchase a property that is sort of premier for the location where I'm buying. So my strategy was built on buying properties in A and B locations in, in various towns. And I made the mistake of buying some B, uh, buying two properties in B minus locations. And the, the caliber is staggering. They're my, they're my problem properties, just nonstop headaches. I don't really understand what the correlation is, but it's real. And now that I have 10 years worth of data, um, if I were, I, I don't regret what I did. I don't regret those purchases. I'm not going to sell them. But if I were to go for a second round, I would be very specific with my buy box and I would only focus on the A location. Yeah, that is a mistake a lot of people make. When you look backwards 20 years and you say, hey, what properties perform the best? Not just appreciation, but, but cash flow too. Rents go up way more in the best locations than they do in the shorter ones. And for some reason, we've gotten into what I think is an unhealthy habit of analyzing properties based on right now, year one, as soon as you buy it. We know that real estate is an organism that grows at different rates in different areas and different opportunities, but yet we still only analyze a deal as tomorrow, if I bought it, what would my cash flow be? But we're not going to own it for one day. We're going to own it for a long period of time. So when you buy in these grade A areas, they can look like a poor investment when you compare it to some turnkey thing in the Midwest that has a 16% cash on cash return. And then 30 years later, it says a 16.5% cash on cash return. And those grade A areas have gone up 10 times in rent and you're crushing it. So I appreciate you sharing your wisdom on that. Yeah. The other thing that really blew my mind, and I learned this further into about five years into my career, and I actually learned it through this property where I'm sitting right now for this recording. I'm sitting inside of a a small cottage that was built in 
the late 1800s, it was uh, a fishing shanty. So this property, uh, based on the assessment, is the overall real estate is worth about $500,000. The actual structure is $35,000. So I just bought a minivan for $55,000, okay? I own a car that is more expensive than the structure. All the value in this piece of real estate is tied up in the land. Just it never really clicked until this slapped me in the face with, with owning this home. So now when I'm working with clients, especially those who want to buy single family homes as investments, I really point this out and, and want them to be aware of the land value. Yeah. I mean, I think this is significant for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's something that can be a plus or a minus, I'd say. Um, but one, one reason to, to really think through that, I guess to, to sum up what you're saying, the real estate, the entire property, house, land, 500,000, the land is very valuable. The actual structure is just like, it's basically, I don't want to say a teardown, but is insignificant compared to the land value, right? And that comes into play, especially for cost segregations, uh, depreciation, because you can only depreciate the actual improvements on a property. And so if you go and you buy a property where the improvement is only worth 5% of the entire purchase price or the cost basis, then you actually won't be able to depreciate very much on that property. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's true. Well, we are going to take advantage of your insight, Dana, reading some questions from different listeners who have uh, written into Seeing Green because they've got some problems and they want solutions. So let's dive into that. Question number one, this comes from Gabby in Los Angeles. So as I start planning for my first investment property, I've been thinking about this question. Is it a better strategy to put all of my cash flow to get one best property I can afford or diversify into a few lower price properties? So this is the typical all my eggs in one basket or several smaller eggs over several smaller baskets. I wonder if it's better for me to put 20% down in a 1.2 million-ish property in LA or get three 400K-ish properties somewhere else or also get a lower price one first than a more expensive one when I have some experience. What are some factors I should consider to make the best decision here? Dana, what do you think so far? Oh my gosh, you took the words right out of my mouth with the one, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket. I love this question and it comes up all the time in, in markets where pricing markets. So I probably tell this listener what they want to hear. These are both great options. Um, I, I have two pieces of advice, two kind of overarching considerations. The first is what do you want to buy? <laughs> because they both work. And I really sincerely mean this. Um, I'm an advocate for buying properties that you're excited about. And I know most investors, they want to take the emotion out of it. And I just refuse. Like, that's a hill I will die on. Um, the reason being is that I, I truly feel the way to make significant wealth in real estate is to just hold on to it and to do whatever you need to do in order to hold on to it. So if you end up buying a property that you're not excited about when problems arise, you're going to be very tempted to sell. When I was younger, my mom um, taught me something which has nothing to do with real estate, but also everything to do with real estate. When we would go back to school shopping, she would maybe try on all the clothes and then she would evaluate do these pants fit? Okay, they're not too big. They're not too small. They fit. But then the next question she would ask me is, do you love them? 
And then she'd go a little bit deeper and she'd say, how do they make you feel? And I've learned to apply that to everything that I purchase, especially real estate. So this new investor is talking about putting 20% down on a $1.2 million property. That's probably everything she has. So I would, I would encourage her to really think about what type of property is she going to be excited about? The other thing that I think this person needs, no matter which direction they, they take is, um, a jumpstart plan. So some way to make this work. And, uh, Rob, you have a ton of experience here, but the first thing that, that I think about is probably a 12 month lease is not going to work on this $1.2 million place. It's, it's probably not going to, it's probably going to be negative cash flow. So could she do a shorter term rental, a midterm rental, get those numbers up for the first few years? Because she's going to need that to become confident and to also get the momentum going. Yeah, 100%. Um, my LA property, I mean, it, it kind of happened accidentally, but it was a short term rental. Actually, I've, I've, at one point, I had a short term rental, midterm rental, and long term rental all in the same property. But it was really nice to start off strong income-wise with the short-term rental, get test out that property, see how it do. And then it did well. But then when regulation hit, I converted it to a midterm rental and actually found that I really liked that strategy even more. And it was like a great hybrid. And having done all three, I could experiment on that property and see... You know, I could choose my own adventure basically, but I think it is really nice to have those con- contingency plans and see what are the different ways that you can make revenue from that same property. Right. So Rob, what's your thoughts? Should somebody put all their eggs into one basket in one property or should they diversify over smaller ones? I don't think anyone should put all their eggs into their first property. I think they should take a swing, but I don't think they should swing for the fences, right? Like I think uh, real estate is a skill that you get better at. And I would rather personally like scale accordingly, learn how to do real estate before you get really, really crazy with it, right? So hit a couple base base hits, load up the bases, and then go for the go for the grand slam, right? That that's how I did it. Um I usually like if someone were approaching me with this exact same question, I'd honestly probably tell them to go somewhere in the six to eight hundred thousand range. Don't go so small that you actually can't cash flow and then you find that it wasn't worth it. Similar to what you're saying, Dana, like we want to make sure that this property is something that you like. And if you're only making a hundred bucks on it, I don't really think it's going to, I think a lot of people, especially for their first investment will say, well, I don't know if this is worth my time. So I would definitely find that sweet spot in the middle. Um, I would like to see this person sort of break it up into two purchases and give them like a bigger one, maybe in that six to $800,000 range, learn the ropes, learn how to do real estate, give themselves enough capital to get into that next property. If, if they really find that real estate is what they want to do. What about you, Dave? I think my advice to Gabby here is capital preservation. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. We understand that, but it's easy to forget how quickly you run out of capital, especially when you're putting 20% down on every deal. So the worst thing that can happen is you buy three, four, five bad deals. You go through the, oh, turnkey sounds easy. I'll do that. <laughs> Works out bad. Oh, this cheap area, I'll go invest in there. <laughs> Turns out terrible. You don't want to do it anymore. You finally figure out the right location, the right asset class, the right deal, how to find it, and you run out of money. So as you're learning, what I advise people to do is to try to keep as much of their capital as they can 
in the first couple of deals. No huge renovation or rehab projects where you seek hundreds of thousands of dollars into the deal. Don't put 20 or 25% down just to try to buy cash flow because you're obsessed with it. Try to do it with primary residence loan, 3.5% down, 5% down. Learn the basics, but keep as much of your capital as you can. Once you've done what both Dana and Rob said, you're a little bit more comfortable with how this rhythm of investing works. Now you have the money to really ramp up what you're doing and you don't run out of cash. So start slow. Once you've got it down, then go big. Sound good to you guys? Yeah. You know, my favorite part about this is that we're all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of these things are perfectly great answers. It definitely comes down to preference. And, you know, some people are just like go getters and they're like, you know what? I'm ready to go. Let's do this thing. Like I'm going to go big or go home. And then some people are like, yeah, I, I want to, I like, I sleep better at night knowing I have money in the bank, but I can take the small risk and see how it goes. That's totally fine too. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high tech sensors that detect break ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Listen up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from Price for Life offer and may be increased. All right. Our next question comes from Greg Peterson. Greg with two Gs in Cape Coral, Florida. I was just in Fort Lauderdale, Florida not that long ago. And let me tell you, you can cut the humidity with a knife. I'm planning to buy my first small multifamily with the 90 to 100 days. I'm looking in Cape Coral, Florida. The one thing I hear constantly is to force equity build on or additions. Sounds like he's been listening to me. I ran into a lot of listings that show potential, but how much of a headache is there for trying to legally add on or buy a property that has a non-legal addition already? Ooh, this is good. There's nothing that influencers like talking about more than legal issues, especially ones that could get people in trouble. So Dana, we brought you in to absorb all the liability. Rob and I aren't going to say anything. Go. <laughs> Rob, you want to take this one? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I'll, I'll talk about it. Um. Listen, I think that new construction and adding on to a property is an absolutely amazing way to build equity. I actually think that it is the best way to build equity. You can go and you can buy a property and you can rehab it. There's a lot of risk, really. I mean, that goes into that because you don't really know what's behind the walls, right? But when you're talking about new construction, there are no surprises. It's not like you're going to open up a wall and be like, oh my gosh, there's mold here. It all usually follows a pretty good plan. And it just gives you so much equity once you're done because you're basically building it at your cost, right? Now, with that said, building is not something that is a cash flow play right now. It is an entire process. And if you're talking about, let's say, building an ADU, if you're talking about building a new construction, if you're talking about adding on to your property, it could very, very easily be a 12 to 18 month process. And if you're talking about a non-legal addition that you have to convert, I don't, I, I don't even, I would never even tell someone to go that route because I don't know enough about it other than that it will probably be a very painful experience. So with all that said, I think that if you have the time to wait and you don't need the cash flow like right now in 12 to 18 months is not a big deal, then you should do it because I think it's a really great way to get to supercharge your cash flow on a, on a property. What's your thoughts on buying something that already has non permitted additions in the property? Because that's almost everything. Very few, in my experience as an agent, I don't know if it's the same for you, Dana, you hardly ever find ADUs or additions to houses where the people went and got permits because that's just asking for your property taxes to get raised. So most people add on to their home, but they don't get it permitted. Is that a danger if you're buying the property? This comes up all the time. Yeah. 
Well, let, we'll start with Rob, and then I'll get Dana's take on it. Uh, I'm I'm iffy on it. I think it depends on how easy it would be, because I think it's going to be county by county. Um, and then I've also had lenders that have kicked back that kind of stuff in the appraisal. Or the one thing that really affected me not too long ago, maybe about a year ago, was that they valued the addition or the kind of other structure significantly less than the actual square footage of the home. So the house didn't appraise and I fell out of escrow like a week before. So I've run into situations like that. Um, so usually I'm more in the camp of like, start fresh and do it. But again, I think that's going to be up to the individual investor. What about y'all? Dana? I agree to, to tread lightly. Where I see this is in the small multifamily space where you might have a two-family property that's zoned as a two-family. Building department has it as a two-family, but it's actively being used as a three-family. And I always tell people, look, we have to analyze this and evaluate it as a two-family, but this could be huge if we could get it approved. And sometimes there's a pretty good chance. So in in my market, you know, we can't bank on it, but a lot of times it comes down to parking. So does the property have adequate parking? Because in, in, in the Boston area, we don't have enough housing. We just don't have enough housing. So it might not be a, a, a quick thing, but it is possible if you push on it, you just need to accept the risk that it may not pan out the way you hope. Yeah, like do you have the time and the budget for the for the upside and for the downside, I think is ultimately my where I would land on that too. And also to your point with financing, that is a huge snag. Usually they want the um, stove. I don't know what it is with the stove, but you got to pull the stove out in order for the property to still go through financing. It's be yeah, I can tell you that's why. It's because one of the regulations that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have is that it can't have more than one kitchen unless it's zoned for multifamily. So if it's zoned for three units, you can have three kitchens. If it's zoned for one, but the house is split into three pieces, it's not a kitchen if it doesn't have a stove. It can have a microwave, countertops. You can have as many fridges in your house as you want. They're never going to come and say, who told you that you could have a second fridge? Like some garages have four fridges or freezers full of elk meat if you're a Joe Rogan fan. But but the stove is the big thing. So you see frequently people take the stove out of the house. Now the, now the appraiser will say this qualifies for financing because it's not breaking a zoning regulation. Then they just go put the stove right back in it. Nobody really ever talks about this. I just said it on the podcast. But this frequently happens like stove removal. If someone can like have a company that's like, we take your stove and we store it for seven <laughs> days and bring it right back, they have a really good business. Well, it's really with the appraiser, right? Yeah, it's the appraiser. And only for financing. That's the other thing. Because the person buying the house can't get the loan if it, the appraiser says no because it's the zoning laws. But people confuse that with the city is going to get all mad at you. Some cities don't care at all. They could not care less that you have an extra kitchenette in your house or you're renting it out. Uh, I will say this though, it this, it really depends on what city you're in. I've seen clients and I've had houses that no one takes a second look. When I got into short-term rental investing, this whole thing got turned over on its head. I have several properties in Florida that I bought and I did not add the units to them. They I bought them with the units in them. And when I applied for the short-term rental permit, the city was angry about short-term rental investors. They're getting all kinds of angry phone calls from the neighbors who don't want a short-term rental in their neighborhood. They came in and said, I need to tear down the ADUs that are a part of the house. One of them is literally a duplex on the same lot as the main house. And they tried to say, you have to tear down your duplex. I didn't build this duplex. It's been there forever. 
All the other houses on the street also have ADUs. And I said, why are, do I have to do this? But all the other homes that you can clearly see driving down this alley, they have the same thing. And the city told us, well, we don't actually do anything until someone applies for a short-term rental permit. And when they do, we go in there and we make them tear them down. So even though we know they have those ADUs, we're not going to do anything to enforce it unless they apply for a short-term rental permit. So it can be tricky when in the past it wasn't tricky. Like They weren't looking to target people. But there are certain scenarios that will bring it up as a red flag. Have you seen that, Dana, in your in your business as well? Yeah. So the issue is the liability with an unpermitted unit, and then you can't get a certificate of occupancy when you go and register it because most people are not registering their rental units, but eventually you might get called in to do that. Uh, the other sticky point is it becomes more difficult when the property is occupied. So now how are you pulling out a stove, getting all this figured out while somebody's living there? And then it's triggering for the tenants and they realize, oh, this place isn't even legal. You know, does it have egresses? All this kind of stuff. So I would say it's pretty hard in, in my area to push it through just because it's it's been there. It would need to go through all of the official it would need to go through the official process for somebody, I think, to feel comfortable renting this moving forward. It's a great big mess, isn't it? We don't have enough housing. So that makes housing super expensive, which sucks for tenants because we have to keep raising rents because we have to keep paying more for the houses. Then they make more regulations. So it's harder to build more houses. So investors buy and then we try to add housing so that we can keep rents lower by increasing supply. Then the city comes in and charges us more or makes us take away the existing housing that was already there, making rents even more expensive, all in the name of protecting tenants. It is this most ridiculous, backwards, circular <laughs> Logic, and it's happening in big cities near you everywhere. Brought to you by your city. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to. I, this has all been like I've been trying not to shed a tear because I did have to pull a, a, the stove out for a cash out refi many years ago for an appraiser while I had a tenant in there who luckily was great and I, you know, it, it was super easy to do. But yeah, I love how you say you shed a tear because you pulled one stove out while I'm literally having to destroy a duplex and turn it into a garage. It's like, oh yeah, David. <laughs> How insensitive to, of me. David's arm had to be amputated. <laughs> I can relate. I popped a pimple once and it was it was so painful. <laughs> I, I threw out my back, man. I've never recovered. <laughs> I had to take a stove out for two days. And... I had to go rent a dolly. <laughs> I had to rent a dolly. You, you threw your how, back how out. How much dolly rentals are? They're 25 bucks. It's because you do everything yourself. This is exactly why. Rob's like, oh yeah, I had to fly to Tennessee and rent a dolly and take a U-Haul to move the stove because I I couldn't trust anyone else to do that right. That's funny. All right. Our next question here comes from James in Seattle. Do you think this is James Daynard, who also is a James from Seattle? Is he sneaking into seeing green? He's asking for He's too nervous to text us for advice because he doesn't want to seem green. He doesn't want to seem green. That's exactly right. He, I don't want to admit I don't know this. All right. From Jimmy Neutron himself. As a brand newbie considering markets outside of my hometown, Seattle, due to cost and competition, how do you decide to factor in future environmental impact on your investment? Okay, this isn't James Daynard. I, he's lost me right there. Florida and Texas look like great opportunities, but they are under threat of hurricane and flooding. And insurance companies are going bankrupt or fleeing. Side note, that is actually a good point. We should talk about that later. Phoenix looks inviting, but they are out of drinking water. Insurance companies are refusing to insure in California and Colorado due to wildfires and Florida due to hurricane risk. Bigger Pockets Ali L just wrote an article about this. 
Do you try to keep your exit strategy short on markets like this, say a five-year term, or avoid them entirely? Thanks for all the inspiring and sobering content. Listening to Bigger Pockets has catapulted my confidence. Okay, this is a good question. Let me go sum up all the things he mentioned because I read a lot there for you. And then we'll go to you, Dana. Uh, he's trying to invest outside of Seattle because there's so much competition, which is driving prices high, but he's considered about the negative aspects like defensive investing here. So Florida and Texas would be good, but there's threats of hurricanes and flooding. Insurance companies are leaving some of the top markets, which is true, like Florida and Texas. Phoenix is running out of drinking water. California and Colorado have issues with wildfires and Florida has constant hurricanes, all true, as well as all kinds of lizards everywhere uh, and alligators. It's amazing how many people are moving to Florida with as wild as that place is. Uh, what are your thoughts, Dana, on when you're picking a market, how much you should consider some of these environmental hazards? Oh, you should definitely consider it. This is coming from somebody who buys old properties, like knob and tube doesn't scare me. Nothing scares me. Can you explain what knob and tube is for those of us that aren't agents who have seen this destroy? <laughs> sure. So knob and tube is is old wiring. It's it's risky. It's like, if, as far as electrical systems are concerned, it's like an abacus Yeah. instead of a calculator. And um, I see it in properties all the time. That That doesn't scare me. We can fix that. We can fix property problems. Environmental threats, I think, are ultimately the biggest threat to your asset, to your real estate. I've been waving the red flag on this for a while with insurance. It's definitely hitting me here. A couple months ago, I actually had to go out and procure all new policies because some of my policies were being dropped. Where I bump into this is with flooding because I work in markets, uh, coastal communities. And the FEMA flood maps are your friend. You can Google FEMA flood map search by address. It's going to pull you to a website where you can type in an address and see how close you are to a flood zone, pull up the GIS mapping, whether you're in a flood zone. And this is a conversation I'm regularly having with people. It's going to be a problem before it actually is a problem. And I won't do it. I will not buy in a flood zone. The last four investments I've made are properties that are all perched up on hills, and I'm very specific about that because I, I want to, you know, again, I'm a long-term investor. So if I am partnering with these properties for the next 30 years, I don't want them to be underwater. It's likely that, yeah, likely if it's in a flood zone in 30 years from now, it will have faced at least a flood in theory. Yeah. So that that's how I feel. I know it's it's doom and gloom and it, it does feel like, well, where can you invest where we don't have this environmental threat? I, I guess I would position it. If you if it is a current known threat, why wouldn't you avoid it? Like why would you buy in a flood zone for an investment property? If you're buying in a flood zone, but it's your primary residence, you're gonna get to wake up every day in your three million dollar oceanfront home and enjoy the views. Okay. We can justify that potentially, but if this is really for investment purposes, maybe just try and find a property up on a cliff. What about mudslides? What about rainstorms? Yeah, I was going to say, that, that That sounds like its own risk <laughs> On a there cliff too. and back from the cliff. I don't know where you're going to find this property. <laughs> what about lightning strikes? Have you considered that? Uh, so, you know, that's where it's like, it's just you have to assess your own risk tolerance because, yeah, we could pick apart so many markets like, yeah, Florida, we have hurricanes, we have flooding, but flood if it's in a flood zone, it's in a flood zone. It's going to flood. That's a, that's a pretty clear one, right? Absolutely. You know what my dream day would look like? Hanging out with me? Mm, hanging out with you, but I get to just look at the negative side of everything you say. 
So you're like, hey, David, do you want to get Chipotle? And I, oh, they charge extra for guac. It's really not fair. They never give me enough cheese. And you're like, okay, what about Chinese food? Oh, I don't like the MSG. Like if people just came to me and said, hey, David, you should invest in real estate. And I just got to come up with all the reasons it won't work. Like what we just did. God, that would be fun. Because this is like, I'm always on the other side of it all the time. Like, yeah, you should buy a house. Ah, but housing's too expensive. Rates are too high. Okay, well... Uh, your rents are going to go up too. Yeah, I would have bought before when rates were lower, but when rates were lower, it was like every house got 20 offers. You couldn't get anyone and they were complaining about that. You could just go back. Every single market had problems. If rate, if this is a funny thing I was just saying last night to my group, if prices dropped as much as we want them to, that means nobody wants to buy houses, right? So if all these houses at 800,000 dropped to 300,000, we're like, I'd buy all of them. No, you wouldn't. Because the only reason they would drop that far if there were some serious, massive problems with the industry, you couldn't find tenants or insurance went up times 10, like something terrible has to happen for no one to want them, right? So you keep getting these people that are, I'm waiting for the next crash. I can't wait, assuming that the crash is going to happen and real estate is still going to be an attractive vehicle and it will never, ever occur. It's Yeah, the moment it's doomsday on the prices, everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, you know what? Never mind. Let's just see how it goes for like the next. This is like, a bad market months. to invest in. It's going to go down even more. Don't catch a falling knife. Blah blah blah. They're going to have a reason not to want to do it. Yeah, totally. So I thought Dana, you provided some good stuff there. What do you like about Boston? Is there a lack of environmental hazards that you feel comfortable investing there? Generally, yes. I would say the the rising sea levels is is our big threat, but we have snowstorms, so. It's expensive if you have parking to make sure your driveways are plowed. Yes. Yeah, that's a big one. We've been having freakier weather for sure. More, we've had tornado warnings more commonly than in the past. So we are experiencing some change. Our winters are not as cold as they used to be as when I was a child, which is concerning. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I'm with you, David, with, with real estate. It's like we can pick apart and we can, we can figure out why we shouldn't do things. And I have a very high risk tolerance. This is like my thing that gets me worked up is the um, environmental stuff. But yeah, overall, long term, 30 years out from now, sure, I'm, I'm worried about it. Rob, you're, you're a local or sorry, you're a fellow out of state investor. You've yeah. never read my book, but you did it anyways, uh, which is cool. Not that I'm upset about you only have read one book. I've listened to the podcast, which is kind the of functional like- Functional equivalent. It saved you the $12 of getting the book. Yeah, it's the director's cut of your book, the director's <laughs> commentary. <laughs> nice analogy. You <laughs> have been hanging around me, man. That was very nicely done. <laughs> what do you think about when you're picking these markets to invest in? And should we do an episode where all we do is find negative things about every single market? Like that could be a fun thing to do where you guys like, what about here? We just find everything we can wrong with it. Yeah. What about, uh, yeah. What about my, it's too beautiful. No, I don't want to elk running through my house and trashing the whole thing. And I got to drive too far to get to a gas station and Tesla's would never be able to make it out there. Like that'd be funny. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I would say the honestly the biggest thing that scares me is the insurance. Um, like especially in Florida, David. You know we have our Scottsdale property, which has been a bear with insurance on that too. Luxury properties are like tough to get insured. So I think that's my first and foremost thing because you you sort of need that to like be protected from a liability standpoint. Uh, I kind of come from the mindset that everything is fixable, right? It doesn't mean that I want to, but like you know I have a beach house in in Crystal Beach and. There will be a hurricane there again. I understand that. I know that it will likely need repairs. And that was sort of, you know, I, that is my 
both my personal like home that I use whenever I want. And then I also rent it on, on Airbnb to help supplement the income. It's fine. Like I understand the risk there. It's very high, so it won't get flooded. But, uh, I probably don't, I don't seek it out though. I'm not like seeking out <laughs> buying, uh, homes where natural disasters are, right? Probably not going to buy a house in like tornado alley per se. You don't want to go into New Orleans, New Orleans and have another huge flood. Yeah, not really. It's, it's not really at the, it's something I consider, but it's not necessarily a deal breaker unless it's like clearly in the, you know, like if on Redfin, it's like flood factor 10 out of 10. I'm like, yeah, probably not going to do that. Right. But overall, everything else I'm usually okay with if I really like the property or the deal. That's really good. Um, I love that I get to answer last because it's like playing poker. You get to watch what everybody else's bets were and you always have the better position to be in because I get to hear all your arguments and then sum them up and add one little thing on. Like, Remember when we were interviewing Alex and Layla and he said, I like to let Layla answer first because I could just take what she said, sum it up and add one extra piece. And she was like, yeah, it sucks. I always have to be the... <laughs> <laughs> throw us under the rug. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or throw, wait, what is that? What did I just say? Under the bus. You you were saying sweep it under the rug and throw it under the bus. And you created a hybrid analogy there. I liked it. <laughs> well, let's go with it. Let's go with it. So there's two things that I would say when it comes to these concerns, which are valid. One, if you can develop the skill of quantifying risk, your crock brain that screams, this is going to hurt me, will quiet down. So find some way to take the what if this happens and turn that into a number. Numbers aren't as scary. The easiest way to do that is through insurance because insurance people are way smarter than I will ever be. They've already quantified the risk of flood, the risk of hurricane, the risk of fire, the risk of earthquake, and they've turned that into a number that I can just use to to uh, protect myself. So like Rob said, luxury properties have more expensive insurance. That will cut into your overhead. So it needs to be priced into how you're going to analyze the deal. But man, insurance is this awesome tool that I can use for all these. Well, what if this happens? Well, if I'm covered by insurance and I know how much it is, I can easily underwrite it and make the decision. The other thing is I've learned changes will always happen. At some point, Arizona very well may run out of drinking water. So you got to ask yourself the question, what would happen if that happened? Would we all just say, well, there it goes. Time for everybody in the state of Arizona to go somewhere else. Right. If you thought that buying the areas you think they'd go to, you're going to get an influx of demand and you're going to do well, but probably not. They're probably going to find a different way to ship water from somewhere else. They're probably going to change some rule to, to dig more wells, to bring water up. Or they're going to find, they're going to put funding towards turning salt water into clean water and we're going to develop a technology just like we did when we got scared of gas prices being high. And 10 years later, we have electric cars everywhere, right? When everyone was talking about, we're going to run out of gas or it's too expensive, we're like, okay, we'll build electric cars. We could do the same thing with drinking water. I don't know exactly how it'd work out because I'm not that smart, but I do know it's a problem that humans can solve. That's why I don't freak out completely. I just think if we do this, what would the result be? Like that's one of the reasons I sort of understand economics when it comes to the housing market and why prices didn't drop when everyone said they would. We shut down the country. We should have gone into a great depression, but we didn't because we printed a bunch of money. Well, what would we expect the result to be? A lot of inflation. Things are going to become more expensive. So I adjusted my advice. Don't quit your job right now. Things are going to get more expensive and buy assets that rise with inflation, which real estate is one. The people who followed that, they did really well over the last five or six years. I think we're going to consider to see it. If you could get into the mode of just saying, how do I quantify the risk and what can I expect the reaction of humanity to be when these things happen, you can make calculated decisions that aren't that bad. Uh, but it stops you from getting into analysis paralysis. You guys agree with that? Alternatively, you could also buy assets that rise with the sea levels and only buy boats. 
There you go. <laughs> houseboats. Just buy boats and rent them. Houseboats. Uh huh. It's like screaming real estate. It's a houseboat. <laughs> What's the land value? Zero. <laughs> Do you get the mineral rights? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Rob's told two funny jokes today, man. He's really stepped thank his you, game thank up you. here. You told one, so you know you could you could still come out on top here. Dana, we got one more question, and Rob talked too long in the last one, so this is only going to you. <laughs> While we have you here, do you have any insights on the current market that we haven't talked about today? Yeah, so there's something that I feel like people aren't talking about enough in general, which is this misalignment between what's being built and what people actually want to buy. And if I were to get back into investing actively, this is this is where I would plug right in. Um, it's the fact that we've got the millennial buyers, they make up over 40% of buyers and they want single family homes, these traditional homes and what's being built. I don't know if this is just happening where I am or, or everywhere, but luxury townhouses. And I understand why developers have to make their margins work, but the result is people are fighting over the little inventory for single family homes, the traditional properties. So people ask me once they hear that I stopped investing, they're like, why? They're, they're also confused why I never graduated into com the commercial space, right? Like it's very unusual for somebody to build their entire portfolio off of small multifamily homes. What's ironic is now that I've taken a step back, if I were to get back into it, I would actually go smaller than small multifamily. I would just go straight into single family homes because I do see this gap and um, it's significant. Awesome. I like that line that you said. There is a discrepancy between what people want and what is being built, which always creates opportunity in the market. So I'll wrap up by just asking you, Dana, if you were to give advice for people who could take advantage of the opportunity, the gap between what is wanted and what's being provided, what would you tell them? What would I tell them? Go for it. Yeah. Is that, was that what the question was? Uh, or like specifics of where should they be looking based on what you see? Should people get into spec building? Should people be buying properties and converting them into something different? What should they convert them into? So where I see the opportunity, and it's this, um, at least I can speak to this market, the formula is location, narrow in on the location, um, quiet side street. Heck, I've just bought properties because they're sunny and I like the trees in the neighborhood, right? Um finding that classic home, paying attention to something called neighborhood conformity. Are you familiar with this term? No. It's it's where sometimes we, we go down a street or we go down a neighborhood and we can't really pinpoint what it is that we like about it. Oftentimes it's because the, the properties all play nice with each other and they're a similar aesthetic. Maybe they're all colonials, they're all you know mix of colonials and capes and they play well. When you see a property that sort of sticks out like a sore thumb, that can be, I think, a higher risk investment. So this concept of of neighborhood conformity is something I would pay close attention to if you're buying a single family home. And then the last bit is value add. And I know we we sort of beat a dead horse with that one, but can you finish out a basement? Can you add livable square footage? Can you um, reconfigure the current layout to make it more functional for today's living? All these sorts of ideas can create this power play. Awesome. Well, this is awesome, Dana. Thank you for joining me on this Seeing Green. We got to see green and through the eyes of Dana and Rob today. Uh, where can people find out more about you if they want to reach out? So my website is just my name, danabull.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's a bit 
cringeworthy, but you can you can check me out there and I'm on LinkedIn. Wait, why is it cringeworthy? I just don't know what I'm doing. I I'm social media is not my thing, but I'm sort of having fun with it. You're talking to the person whose online handle is David Green24 and Rob mercilessly calls me old and boring for having a handle. He thinks it should be like official David Green or David Green underscore. The real David Green. (laughs) Yeah. He wants it to be like thy real David Green or something. So I don't think you're as cringy as you think. The 24 works. Datable underscore realtor. That's awesome. Rob, where can people find out more about you? You can find me at robbuilt24 uh, on Instagram, on YouTube, and on threads. I'm going to add the 24 just for one day, just for you in solidarity. How's threads? <laughs> it's the Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Robbilt, R-O-B-U-I-L-T. On YouTube, I make fun videos that teach you how to do this real estate thing every week. All right. Well, thank you, Dana. People want to follow me. They can do so here on Bigger Pockets or my social media is David Green 24 on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, or YouTube. So go check me out there. Great time with you, Dana. Thank you for coming back and congratulations on your successful business and making real estate work for the life that you wanted for yourself. Very nice to see. So cool. Thank you. This is David Green for Rob No Asky No Getty Abasolo. Signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.